God. Well, good morning, River Valley Church. Is anybody excited to be in the house of God this morning? Amen. I tell you, I'm not just excited. I am Red Bull excited. Uh, to be here at this church, to say the least. You know, I've been hearing about River Valley even before I got here. I don't know whether you know this or not. People are talking behind y'all's back, and uh, but they're saying good things, man. So I'm glad that I finally got my chocolate face in the place to see all the good things God is doing in this place. I feel like I'm already a part of the family. As it was mentioned, we had an amazing time with your young people at every one conference. And uh, the reason I'm here for the weekend is really quite simple. Uh, Pastor Rob called me. It was a quick conversation. And uh, he said, uh, Robert, do you believe in free speech? I said, Pastor Rob, yes, I do. He said, good. Come get five of them this weekend at River Valley Church. So... <laughs> So that's why I'm here this morning, and uh, it's just an honor to be here. I do want to give honor to where honor is due, uh, because I hope you know how blessed you are to have pastors like Pastor Rob and Becca. They are the creme de la creme of leaders, true pioneers, and I pray you don't ever take them for granted. Come on, can we give God some praise for your leaders? Oh, you can do better than that. Amen. They're awesome. I'm just glad they would let me stand behind this pulpit, and we're going to have a good time in here this morning. Did anybody come to get a word from God? If y'all feel like hearing this, like I feel like preaching it, it's going to be so good. You say, how do you know it's good, Robert? I preached it to myself in the hotel room, (laughs) responded to my own altar call, and I wrote my ministry a check for $1,000. So I promise you, (laughs) you're going to be blessed today. Uh, I do need to apologize for my appearance. Um, I'm sure you noticed this glow. Uh, that's emanating from my face. Uh, It's not the Shekinah glory. It's not the lighting here at River Valley. It's not even because I use exfoliating skin products. But uh, the reason I have a little bit of a glow is because I've been married now for one year, six months, to the most beautiful woman on the planet. Uh, Her name is Taylor, and uh, generally she travels with me, but she's not able to be here because uh, she's been having a little um, morning sickness. Uh, been a little nauseous because uh, we're expecting our first child on October 7th. So, hey man, we're just pumped. We're excited. I don't know how it happened, uh, <laughs> but we're excited about it. Do you have a Bible with you this morning? I want to jump straight into the Word. If you got a Bible, why don't you just wave it in the air like you just do care? Hey man, keep it up a little longer. I'm trying to see where the saved people are. Hey man, I'm playing. <laughs> You can't afford a Bible, it's cool. Just just go to the nearest hotel after this service. Just steal you a Gideon. Amen. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to look at verses 1 and 2. And then also 1 Samuel 18, 5 through 9. Uh, I realize many of you never heard me preach before, so a uh, quick disclaimer. Uh, I am what you call like a holla back preacher. So basically what that means is it's illegal for you to sit there while I'm preaching this morning and just go, that's interesting. No, I actually preach better and shorter uh, when, when you're responsive and you shout things at me like, come on with it and you better preach and you stand up in the middle and say, whoo, that was for me or stand up in the middle and say, whoo, that was for you. Any one of those <laughs> will work this morning. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. 
What an awesome thought to consider that God has set a race before each and every one of us and we're required to run that race. How do we do it? He says we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Can you say amen? Real quick, 1 Samuel 18, uh, 5 through 9. It says, whatever Saul gave David to do, he did it and did it well. So well that Saul put him in charge of his military operations. Everybody, both the people in general and Saul's servants, approved of and admired David's leadership. As they returned home after David had killed the Philistine, the women poured out of all of the villages of Israel, singing and dancing, welcoming King Saul with tambourines, festive songs, and lutes. I'm not really sure what a lute is, but I'm assuming it's like a flute without the F. And <laughs> in playful frolic, come on, this is a party. People are frolicking. It says, in playful frolic, the women sang, Saul kills by the thousand, David by the ten thousand. This made Saul angry, very angry. He took it as a personal insult. He said, huh. They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Before you know it, they'll be giving him the kingdom. And from that moment on, Saul kept his eye on David. I want you to see just for a moment these two verses in parallel. Because the writer of Hebrews tells us that there has been a race that has been set before us that we're required to run. And we do it by keeping our eye on Jesus. But here we have Saul because of a comparison that these ladies made between him and David, no longer is he running his race and keeping his eyes on Jesus, but comparison has caused him to shift his focus and his attention on to David. I want to preach uh, this morning for about five and a half hours <laughs> using as a subject on their mark, on their mark. I realize when you're running a race, generally the saying is get on your mark, but I'm finding out many people cannot run the race God has set before them because they have their eyes on the people in the lanes beside them. So instead of being on your mark, you're on their mark. Ooh, this is going to be good in here today. Come on, let's pray before we go into this word. Father, I thank you for the power that is in your word. God, I know the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word shall stand forever. Holy Spirit, saturate this place from center to circumference. God, we've not come here out of religious routine. God, we've not gathered here to be entertained. Lord, we've come to be drastically changed. Speak to us. Do whatever you want to do in this place. And somebody who loves Jesus, say amen. Say amen again. Amen. A quick sermonic survey. Um, how many of you, by a showing of hands, you like to work out? You enjoy exercise? Can I, can I see your hand? Wow, that is a lot of hands. Healthy church here uh, this morning. How many of you, by a showing of hands, you do not like to work out? You don't enjoy exercise? Can I see your hands? Come on, don't lie in church. Okay, <laughs> awesome. Uh, th those of you who lifted up your hand the first time, the first time, saying you like to work out, uh, you enjoy exercise, you are officially dismissed from the service, okay? No, for real, you can leave. As a matter of fact, run home, okay? <laughs> 
because I've now found some camaraderie and some commonality with the second group of people who lifted up your hand. Y'all are my people. People, I do not like to work out. I will lift up two hands and both feet, okay? Because there is nothing in me that finds enjoyment or pleasure in going to the gym. As a matter of fact, I hide out from gyms at all costs. So much so that sometimes my trainer, who I pay, will call me and say, Robert, I haven't seen you in the gym in a while. And to him I will say, look, I'm in a fitness protection program. I can't be in that gym. Ain't nobody got time for that. I, I just don't like working out. In fact, I am theologically and physiologically persuaded that having to work out was as a result of the fall of man. Oh, yes. People, th there were no gyms in Genesis. Th there were no ellipticals in the Garden of Eden. God, in his infinite wisdom, created us as perfectly perfect beings. That means Adam had biceps. He had triceps. He had a six-pack. Ladies, Eve had 0% body fat. Come on, somebody. You say, well, what's your scripture for that, Robert? How do you know? Oh, I'll give you some scripture. The Bible says they were both naked and unashamed. Come on, somebody. <laughs> You only walk around naked if you got it going on. I'm just saying. <laughs> it wasn't until they took of the forbidden fruit that calories and sin entered the world. So, uh, I don't like to work out, but, but I do work out. I do work out. And the reason I do what I hate is because what I love, which is to eat. I'm a better eater than I am a faster, so I do work out. And when I go to the gym, I love to lift weights. There's just something manly about throwing up iron and putting on Old Spice. I like to lift. Uh, however, lifting does not burn the calories. It doesn't burn the calories. You have to engage in cardio, which means you have to also participate in a three-letter word that I hate called run. That's my issue right there, people. I do not like to run. I cannot articulate to you how much I despise running. I hate that run rhymes with fun because there's nothing fun about running. In fact, whenever I do run, I convince myself I have asthma just so I can stop running. So... So for me to get on a treadmill is like a big deal, and I need a lot of motivation. I need a Just Do It t-shirt. I need the Lance Armstrong bracelet. I mean, I need motivational music. I got the eye of a tiger. I need all that just to get on the treadmill. And then once I get on the treadmill, I'll start at a good pace, and I'll be going. I'm like, oh, this is not that bad. I got it. I'm like, oh, I've been running for like 30 minutes. And then I'll look down at the clock, and it's actually three minutes. And I'm like, my asthma, I'm dying. I can't do this. So, so I got this move. I I got this move that I've created for motivation to stay on the treadmill. I'm letting out my secrets at River Valley. This is my last resort to stay on the treadmill. What I'll do as I'm running, wanting to give up, is I'll just slowly look to the right, and then I'll look to the left. And what I'm doing is I'm looking for somebody, anybody, a much older than me body, and I'll find that random person who's also running on the treadmill, and once I've found that person, I will lock my eye in on that person, and I will say something to them, not out loud, but in my mind, real loud. I'll say something to them, I'll say, in my mind, psh, you don't want none. Now, <laughs> let me explain what just happened when I said, psh, you don't want none. What just happened is, unbeknown to that person, we just entered into a race, okay? <laughs> Unbeknown to that person, this workout just got real. What they don't even realize is when I said that the entire gymnasium has been transformed into the 2014 Olympics and the first person to step off is going home with the silver and the one that stays on the longest is getting the gold and all I do is get gold medals because I'm American and that's how we do it. So, 
it's a true story. So it, it really helps. It really helps if the person is right next to you because then you can see their screen and see exactly how fast they're going. You know what I'm saying? So if they're on level six, I'm on level six. Point five. If they speed up, I'm going to speed up. If they slow down, I'm going to slow down. If they go on the incline, I'm going to go on the incline. If they stop and take a break, I'm going to stop and take a break. Oh, yes, I'm not going to keep running while they stop and take a break. That's cheating. You can't cheat in the Olympics. You can get deported for that, people. So whatever they do, I'll do. And then I'll wait for it. I'll wait for it till they get off of the treadmill. Then I'll speed mine up to the fastest level because you got to sprint to the finish line. And then I'll push, stop, grab my towel and say, I got the gold and rejoice in victory. I wish I was lying, but this is true. In fact, I beat a guy a couple of weeks ago, a random guy, beat him in the gym, and I saw him in the locker room afterwards. I said, hey, man, how are you? He said, I'm good. How are you? I said, I'm great. As a matter of fact, I'm golden, loser. It was awesome. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you laugh. You laugh because it's funny when you talk about comparing yourself to somebody in the gym, comparing yourself to somebody in exercise. But how many of you know it's not so funny when you talk about comparing yourself to other people in life? And ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I'm afraid this morning's message mandates that you introspectively ask the critical question, who are you racing? Who are you racing? I'm just wondering who in your life have you set your eye on and when they speed up, you feel like you have to speed up. And if they go on an incline, you feel like you have to go on an incline and you are running your race according to their pace instead of running the race that God has set before you. Instead of keeping your eyes on Jesus and doing the thing that God has called you to do before the foundation of the earth. Oh, the comparison game is a dangerous game to play. Interesting thing about treadmills, which is another reason why I hate running. I don't know if you notice, when you're on a treadmill, you're doing a lot of movement, a lot of breathing, but you're not going anywhere. You're in the exact same place you were when you started. What a beautiful metaphor for the comparison game. Because whenever you compare yourself to somebody else, all you end up doing is exerting a lot of psychological, emotional, and physical energy trying to keep up with somebody you were never created or called to keep up with. And at the end of all of it, you realize, I'm in the exact same place I was when I started. Ooh, I'm afraid I got a lot of information on this sermon today because I'm actually just exercising something a great mentor of mine told me. He said, Robert, if you preach from your weakness, you'll never lack for material to preach. <laughs> so I'm just preaching from my weakness today. <laughs> and if nobody buys the tape, I'll buy it and watch it later. But because uh, I found in my own life, as I'm running the race God has set before me, I have this inner propensity and tendency to look at the people in the lanes beside me. I am convinced that comparison is the number one destroyer of destiny. I am convinced that comparison is the enemy's number one weapon of mass destruction and mass distraction to get you to compare yourself to somebody else. Because after all, that's what got the enemy kicked out of heaven. Lucifer, that's what got him kicked off the praise and worship team. It started with comparison. Rather than him being a conduit and an expression of God's glory, he started comparing himself to God and said, I want that same glory that he has. And that's what got him fired off the praise and worship team. And now his job is to kill, steal, and destroy from you and I. And that's exactly what comparison will do. It will kill your joy. It will destroy your peace. It will suffocate your sanity. Comparison, hear me, is the cancer to contentment. You know, the Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain. You cannot be content when you are comparing yourself to somebody else. 
I love the Apostle Paul when he begins to bring order and structure uh, to the church at Corinth. He actually tells them that comparison is antithetical to wisdom. He said it's the opposite of wisdom. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. He says, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. We dare not do it because they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Paul says you are dumb. You are stupid. You are foolish if you are comparing yourself to somebody else. And do you know why comparison is not wise? It's because comparison will consistently cloud the clarity of God's call on your life. That was so good. I'm going to rewind it to you, give it to you again. <laughs> comparison will consistently cloud the clarity of God's call on your life. If you ever want to be confused about what God's called you to do, then just start comparing yourself to what other people have been called to do. It will consistently cloud the clarity of God's call. First of all, let's just establish that there has been a call placed on your life. Ooh, I hope you know that this morning, that there has been a call that has been placed on your life. Not a random call, but a call that is so unique, a call that is so specific, a call that is so idiosyncratic that only you can do the thing that God has called you to do. Your mother can't do it, your father can't do it, your brother can't do it, your sister can't do it, your crazy cousin can't do it. Only you can do the thing that God has put you on this earth to do. You are not here by accident. You are here by God's divine providence. He has put you on this earth for an assignment and something to accomplish in the earth realm. If you just check your pulse, just check your pulse real quick, check your pulse. If you have a pulse, that pulse is proof positive God is not through with you yet. There has been a call that has been placed on your life. I feel like preaching. You got a call. I'm telling you. You do know there's a difference between a career and a calling. See, a, a career is what you get paid to do. But a calling is the thing you were made to do. It's the thing God put you on this earth to do. There has been a call placed on your life. Not only that, God has given you everything you need to accomplish that call. Ooh, what a liberating thing to know that everything I need to do, what God has called me to do, it's already in me. He's already put it on the inside of me. Not only is that liberating, but it also lets me know that God is just. Because it would be unjust for God to give me a call and then not give me what I need to accomplish that call. But how many of you in here are thankful that everything you need to do what God has called you to do, it's already in you. He already put it in you. Stop asking for something else because he already gave you what you need. If you were supposed to be taller, he would have made you taller. If you were supposed to be faster, he would have made you faster. If you were supposed to be cuter, he would have made you cuter. If you were supposed to be black, he would have made you black. If you were supposed to be white, he would have made you white. If you were supposed to be Latino, buenos dias, he would have made you Latino. Quit complaining to the master about the pieces you didn't get and start praising him that you're a masterpiece. Come on somebody, you are a masterpiece. You have been carefully created, meticulously made by a God that loves you. You're a masterpiece. Ooh, I feel like preaching. My right toe is tingling. Let me, let, me, uh, let, let me interrupt this regularly scheduled sermonic broadcast so that we can engage in a verbal uh, announcement. Can you do this? Can you just say, I, I am a masterpiece. Come on, say it like you had your coffee. Say, I, I am a masterpiece. Come on, this time say it like you believe it. Say, I, I am a masterpiece. Ooh, 
if that got in your heart, in your spirit, you would walk around with so much swag and God confidence. You would do some cartwheels up and down the aisle to know that you are a masterpiece. In fact, you ought to go to work tomorrow with some velvet rope and put it around you. And when people say, why you got that velvet rope around you? Look at them and say, oh, you didn't know? I'm a masterpiece. There is a God that created me. I am wonderfully and fearfully made. When he made me, he broke the mold. I am a masterpiece. By the way, that's not just a feel-good phraseology. It's not just cute self-help talk. It's actually scripture. Look what Ephesians 2 verse 10 says. It says, for we are God's masterpiece. That's good stuff. I told the young people, I don't do drugs. I do scripture. That is awesome. It says, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So we can do the good things that God planned for us long ago. What an awesome thing to know that God has planned good things for us to do. And all we have to do is get in our lane, stay in our lane, and keep our eyes on Jesus. Would you just look at somebody next to you and say, stay in your lane? Oh, come on, tell them, stay in your lane. Oh, what exploits could we do for the kingdom of God if we would just run our race, stay in our lane, and keep our eyes on Jesus Can you imagine what we could do in the kingdom of God if we just stayed in our lane? I love when the announcer says, get on your mark, because that's what he's saying. He's saying, just get in your lane and get ready. And that is a great thought to consider that God has created a lane for me to run in. You know, a lane is marked by two lines. One line here and one line here. And you have to run within the parameters of the two lines. The two lines make the lane. Interestingly enough, you have two destinies. Every person in this room has two destinies. One destiny is universal, and that is we are called to become more and more like Jesus every single day. That is the universal destiny of every believer. If you're in here today going, well, what am I supposed to do in my life? I'll tell you, you're supposed to become more and more like Jesus every single day. That is the universal destiny of every believer to become more and more like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to forgive like Jesus, to show grace and mercy like Jesus. That is the universal destiny of every believer. But you do have another destiny and it is not universal. It's unique. And that is you are to become unlike anybody God has ever created. Everybody else is already taken, so you may as well just be you. So those two destinies are the parameters within I run my race. So on one hand, I'm trying to be more and more like Jesus. And on the other hand, I'm trying to be unlike anybody God has ever created. More and more like Jesus and unlike anybody God has ever created. And that's how you run your race. That's That's why when you put your faith in Jesus, you can never say you're just anything. Oh, that vernacular has to go out the window. You can't just say, well, well, I'm just a school teacher. You are not just a school teacher. You are God's representative in the classroom so the classroom can see what does Jesus look like when Jesus teaches a class. You're not just a doctor. Quit saying that. You are God's representative in the medical field so the medical field can see what does Jesus look like when Jesus practices medicine. You can't say you're just in it. You are not just a barista at Starbucks. You are God's representative at Starbucks so Starbucks can see what does Jesus look like when he serves a triple grande mocha frappuccino with no whipped cream. Wherever you are, that's what you're called to be Jesus in. I'm telling you, you can't say you're just a hairstylist. Come on. You are God's representative in that hair salon so the hair salon can see what does Jesus look like when he puts weave in somebody's hair come on wherever your sphere of influence is he's called you to run your race and keep your eyes on him but you can't run a race when you're looking like this 
As a matter of fact, let's just think practically. If you're running a race, I don't care how fast you are. You can be as fast as Usain Bolt. If you're running like this, let me prophesy to you. <laughs> there is a crash in your future. <laughs> and no wonder Saul had such a huge crash because he had his eyes on David instead of on Jesus. Now, make no doubt about it, there was a season in Saul's life where his eyes were focused on Jesus and he was running his race. Because you have to understand, Saul was the first king of Israel. He was anointed and appointed by God to be king. Oh, there was a season that he was running his race. I love when the Bible talks about Saul because it uses picturesque language. It says that Saul looked like a king. He stood a head and shoulders above any other person. The Bible actually says he was good looking. Come on, when the Bible says you're good looking, nobody can tell you you're ugly, okay? You just tell them, read the word. You already know I got it going on. Read the word. I'm telling Saul, Saul looked good. He looked like a king. God blessed him to be king. But you've got to be careful with the blessing of God. Because if the brightness of the blessing ever blinds you to the blesser, it is no longer a blessing. It has become a curse. And the brightness of the blessing blinded Saul to the blesser, so much so he was more concerned with being king than he was with worshiping the king of kings. He was more concerned with his position than he was with seeking after God's presence. So God had to remove the kingship away from him. But there was another young boy out on the hillside of Jerusalem who all he cared about was being in the presence of God. He didn't care about a title. He didn't care about a position. He just cared about being in the presence of his creator. So much so that when he was alienated and ostracized by his family and out taking care of some dumb sheep he was out there with his harp singing love songs to God until one day he gets a text message to go to the battlefield and bring his brothers a ham and cheese sandwich and when he gets down to the battlefield he sees a giant who is big enough to eat hay and dumb enough to enjoy it and he's defying the armies of the living God and he says wait a minute who is this uncircumcised Philistine Ooh, I love David because that's Christian cussing right there he's like is this uncircumcised Philistine that dare defy the armies of the living God? Hold on, hold on. This is not happening, not on my watch. Somebody tell me, what do you get for knocking him out? No, let me know. Mama said knock him out. Somebody tell me, what do you get for knocking him out? They were like, well, David, uh, you're going to get the king's daughter, and you'll never have to pay taxes again. What? Somebody hold my harp. Hold on. You come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you in the name of Jesus, the God of these armies whom you have defiled. This day I will cut off your head and feed your flesh to the wild birds of the air and the beast of the field. And today the world will know there is a God in Israel. That's what David said. And, uh, that's exactly how David sounded, by the way. He's 13 sounds like Darth Vader. Anyway. You know the story, many of you would. He throws the rock, hits Goliath in the forehead. And hear me, when Goliath came crashing down, David rose up. When he killed Goliath, in that moment, everything changed for David. This was a destiny moment that catapulted him out of obscurity into notoriety. This was a big moment for David. You know, there's moments in your life where everything shifts, everything changes. This is David's moment. I'm telling you, he's on Facebook. He's on Twitter trending. He's on every news story. Kids are going, whoo, did you see that fight on YouTube? They're saying, Dad, can I get a David jersey? Everybody's singing his praises. They're going, David, David, he's our man. If he can't do it, nobody can. They're selling David action figures at Toys R Us. This is a big moment for David. As soon as he killed Goliath, he became a rock star. Literally. Rock. 
Okay, I'm just trying to make it plain on a Sunday morning. I mean, this is a big moment for David. Come on, Jonathan, who's next in line to be king, sees the anointing on David's life and says, wait a minute, I'm not next, you're next, and refuses to be king. Even Saul, who's acting crazy in our text today, sees the anointing on David's life and invites him to move into the palace. He says, no more sheep for you. I'm moving you into the palace. Can you imagine the first day David walks into the palace after being out with the sheep? I can see him going, started started from the bottom now I'm here this is a great moment for David the giant has been defeated the wicked witch has been killed the one who's been taunting the children of Israel the battle is over the buzzard has sounded and the fat lady has sung only problem is Saul didn't like what the fat lady was singing wasn't a fat lady it was just a group of ladies and uh, here's what they sang Saul has killed his thousands but David his tens of thousands And when Saul heard that, he went from running his race like this to fixing his eye on David. So Saul becomes a case study for the downward spiral of what comparison will do in your life. Because comparison is always the beginning of the end. Okay, by the way, all that was my introduction. Uh, Now this is what I really want to (laughs) say. Wish I was lying. Um... (laughs) Here's what Saul says, because his speech shows us how comparison begins. Look what he says. He goes, wait a minute. You're going to credit David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands? Wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You guys want to give little David credit for tens of thousands, but me with only thousands? Did you hear it? His speech shows us how comparison begins. Comparison always begins with, but me but me. That's good for you, but but me. Saul cannot separate David's success from his success, nor can he separate what's going on with David's life and his life. He is immediately connected what's going on with David to him. He's saying, oh, that's good for him, but me. But me. Have you ever met a but me person? (laughs) They connect everything in life right back to them. That's good for you, but but, but me, their butt keeps getting them in trouble. Have you ever met a but me person? Uh, you English majors are acutely aware of the fact that but is a conjunction. Conjunction, junction. Somebody watched Schoolhouse Rock in the first service. What's your function? Hooking up phrases and clauses and making them sound right. That's what some people do in life. They connect everything in life back to them. Oh, that's good for you, but, but me, but me. Okay, some of you need a visual, so let me, let me help you here. Um, I know you're not supposed to wear sunglasses inside, but have you ever met a but me person? They see everything in life through the lens of but me. These are my but me glasses. You ever seen somebody that sees everything through the lens of but me? These are the worst people to tell a success story to. Do not tell a but me person about your testimony or your praise reward because they cannot celebrate with you. The reason why? Because they can't help but connect what's going on with you to them. I mean, you'll call a but me person. You'll say, whoo, I finally got that raise on my job. Who God is Jehovah Jireh, my provider. And they'll go, oh, yeah, that's awesome. That's great for you. And then we get, when they get off the phone, they're like, God, but me. I've been tithing and giving an offering just as much as he has. How come you haven't given me a raise on my job but me? Have you ever met a but me person? I'm telling you, they cannot celebrate a joyous moment. It doesn't matter how celebratory it is. It could be a wedding. Come on, nothing worse than a but me bridesmaid. 
I mean, come on, this is a beautiful moment. Everybody's happy. Celine Dion is playing. White doves have been released from a cage. This is a happy moment. But the but me bridesmaid is going, yeah, that's, that, that's good for her, Lord. But me, do you know how long I've been by myself? You know how many nights I've had to hold myself? You know how many Valentine's Day I sent roses to myself and watched the notebook by myself? How come you haven't given me a husband? No, that's good for her, Lord. I'll throw the rice, but I'm just saying, but me. Ever met a but me person? Saul has on the but me glasses, and the but me glasses blind you because your eyes are on other people instead of on Jesus. Interestingly enough, I, uh, I empathize with Saul at the beginning because you got to ask ourselves, who started the comparison? It wasn't like Saul started the comparison. It was the ladies. It was an external voice that started the comparison. And it is frustrating when an external voice makes a comparison on your life. Oh, come on. Can we give Saul a moment to be human? You don't like it when external voices compare you to other people. Anybody ever had a parent that told you, oh, why can't you be more like your sister? She always keeps her room clean. And then you walk by your sister's room and there she is sitting on her bed that's been perfectly made. You're like, I hate you. <laughs> I mean, come on, it's frustrating when people compare you to somebody else. I mean, come on, lady, you spent all that day in the kitchen cooking that wonderful meal for him, preparing it only for him to come home, eat the meal and say, hmm, my mom didn't make macaroni and cheese like this. You're like, call your mama to come make you some macaroni and cheese then. I mean, come on, it's frustrating. People compare you to somebody else. So I empathize with Saul. I said, man, they're comparing his number to David's number. But then I started investigating and digging down deep into the archaeological value of this text. And I began to find out that's not what the ladies were doing at all. At surface level, it looks like they're comparing Saul's number to David's number, right? Because look what they said. Saul, you've killed your thousands. David, your tens of thousands. So you think they're comparing Saul's number to David's number. But in actuality, it's not what they're doing. When you study Hebrew poetry and writing, which this text is derived, you begin to find out that whenever they would talk about numbers, the second number that was mentioned in an instance like we have today was generally amplified, not necessarily because of its numerical value, but more so to intensify the totality of what was being said for literary impact. Okay, let me break it down and give you some blues clues and make it real plain. <laughs> Okay, we do the same thing today. We do the exact same thing today. I could say, don't ask me for money. Ask Pastor Don for money. You know why? He has hundreds and thousands of dollars. What did I do? I amplified the second number mentioned. I would not say he has hundreds and cents. Because that don't make sense. I say he has hundreds and thousands. I amplified the second number mentioned. I didn't even give you an exact amount. I'm just trying to get you to know the weight of his wealth. That's exactly what the ladies are doing here. They're not comparing Saul's number to David's number. Here's what they're really saying in the original language. You know what they're saying? Saul has killed a bunch and David has killed a bunch. We're just glad they're all dead. <laughs> why can't Saul see that? Why can't they see they're not comparing his number to your number? You know why he can't see it? He's got on the butt me glasses. And it's so easy to put them on, isn't it? So easy to put on the butt me glasses. Here's some signs you got on the butt me glasses as I land and my homie plays real softly behind you to let you know I'm landing <laughs> and make me sound more spiritual. <laughs> here's, some, here's some signs you got on the butt me glasses. If you can't celebrate the successes of other people, chances are you got on the butt me glasses. If you're stingy with your compliments and you think to compliment or commend somebody else, take something from you, chances are you got on the but me glasses. 
If there's anybody in your life that secretly you would find pleasure or joy in their failure, chances are you're wearing the butt me glasses. And it's so easy to put on the butt me glasses, isn't it? Especially in our culture we live in today, this culture of social media, social me, dear. Get it tomorrow. Um, <laughs> change the game. Because how many know we have all these different venues and outlets to see what other people have? So it's so easy to put on the button me glasses. We got Facebook, we got Instagram, we got Twitter, and you can in a second see what everybody has. Can you imagine how happy and content you would be if you just didn't know what other people had? Isn't it funny how our awareness drives our discontentment? I mean, come on, you were happy with your vacation to Disney. You're like, ooh, I'm going to Disney. Cannot wait to go to Disney. We're going to go see Mickey. You were real happy until you got on Facebook and saw your friend is going to Paris, France. Like, I hate Disney. I hate that rat. I don't want to see him. Why can't I go to Disney? Why can't I go to Paris? So easy to put them on. Come on, you are happy with your Ford Focus. You're like, oh, God, thank you for blessing me with this Ford Focus. Oh, I love this car. I am focused on my Ford Focus. Oh, I don't have to walk anymore. You're real happy till you got on Instagram and saw your coworker got a brand new Ferrari. You're like, I hate this Ford Focus. Lord, he doesn't even go to church. Why would you let him get a Ferrari? Why have thou forsaken me but me? So easy to put them on. And I'm not hating on social media. I think it's awesome. In fact, I'll be on it after the service. <laughs> Sometimes I just wonder if the screens on our phones, and on our computers, have now become mirrors that we constantly check looking for a reflection to see if we measure up to somebody else. And like a scene stolen from Snow White, we silently echo the words of the Wicked Witch who check the mirror every day trying to figure out mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Only today it's mirror, mirror on Facebook. Tell me how my life should look. Mirror, mirror on Instagram. Tell me who I really am. We keep checking. Trying to say, is that what I'm supposed to look like? But what would happen, church, if we looked at the word of God for our reflection? And we've kept our eyes on Jesus so that we could run our race. I imagine we would do incredible things for the kingdom of God. Comparison starts with but me. I, I'm, I'm going to land, but I, uh, I'll tell you how this message became real to me. I told you I'm, I'm preaching to myself today. And the way the Holy Spirit crystallized this message for me is this summer I had an incredible opportunity to preach at a conference in Sydney, Australia. It was my assignment to go over there to preach to the young people of the conference. It was like some 7,000 young people that had gathered at the conference. And I went over there to preach to the young people. But in conjunction with the young people having their section of the conference, there was also the main stage part of the conference. And some 30,000 people had gathered in the arena for the main stage part of the conference. And uh, I said, I'm just going to preach to the young people and sit in on the main stage sessions and the people that had preaching main stage were people that were really struggling to get their ministry started. Um, people like Bishop T.D. Jakes and Joe Olstein. <laughs> so, so I'm just going to listen to them and kind of take it all in. However, as I'm sitting in that arena, my wife and I knew something that the other 30,000 people didn't know. And that was just before we had come to Australia, we had actually received an invitation to preach main stage for this year's conference. So I'm there kind of taking everything in and looking at the crowd. It was, it was awesome. All of a sudden, they showed the promotional video for this year's conference. And all these big names are on the screen. I mean, Abraham Lincoln. I mean, you think of it. It's all these 
names. And then after the pastor of the conference said, there's probably one name you won't recognize on that list. His name is Robert Madu. He'll be one of the youngest speakers we've ever had to speak at this conference. And then he paused and goes, and you know what? I think I might let you get a preview of him on this stage before you hear him. <laughs> now, that would have been cool if I wasn't finding out with the other 30,000 people in the arena. Immediately, my heart went down into my stomach. My, I was just going crazy. I see him after the service. He goes, did you hear my announcement? I said, yes, I did. <laughs> he said, I was thinking tomorrow that after T.D. Jakes preaches, <laughs> you could preach for like 10 minutes just as a preview for next year's conference. What do you think about that? I said, yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> went to the hotel room that night, true story, fell on the ground in the fetal position. Tears coming down my face. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. My wife, you know, she's just the cutest. She's a Southern belle. She's like, babe, you can do it. It's okay. It's all right. I said, no, I can't. No, I can't. Called my dad long distance. I didn't even care. It was like $10 a minute. I called my dad. You know, my dad is African from Nigeria. So I called my dad, told him. And my dad said, son, you can do this. Before the foundation of the earth, God knew you would be there. You can do all things to Christ who strengthens you. That's how my dad talks. And, uh... I said, Dad, no, I can't. No, I can't. It's 30,000 people. So nervous, so intimidated. Before I got up on stage, had a conversation with myself that I often have. I said, uh, who opened this door? God did. Who did they ask? Me. I just have to be me. So I went up there, and I was me. But after I finished, the Holy Spirit asked me a critical question. He said, do you want to know the real reason while you fell on the ground in the fetal position, tears coming down your face? I said, no. <laughs> I said, I already know the real reason. There's 30,000 people in the arena. I said, no, that's not the real reason. The real reason you felt so much intimidation is because the whole time you were sitting in that arena listening to all those other names, you weren't listening to the word of God. You were comparing how they run their race to the way I've called you to run your race. And that's why you felt so much intimidation. So let that be the last time you cry trying to compare yourself to somebody you were never called and created to be. And understand that I have given you a grace to run your race. And with that said, i got an awesome public service announcement I want to make today at River Valley. I hope it doesn't stop me from coming back. But can I tell you, I am a horrible T.D. Jakes. I am the worst Joel Osteen you have ever seen in your life. I've never been a good Billy Graham. I'm not a good Rick Warren. I'm a horrible Rob Ketterling. I'm an even worse Joyce Meyer or Christine Kane. But there's one thing I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I am the best Robert Madu you have ever seen in your life. And I just gotta be me. Come on somebody, you gotta be you. This is your moment. This is your season to come under the weight of comparison and keep your eyes on Jesus. Come on and run your race and when you run your race, God will do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you may ask or think. Ooh, come on, somebody give God some praise in this place today. If you're ready to keep your eyes on Jesus and run the race that he has set before you, you got to keep your eyes on Jesus. Stop comparing yourself to other people. And say, God, I know you've given me the grace to run my race. I'm just going to ask every person to stand all over this place today. I'm just going to ask heads be bowed, eyes be closed. Holy Spirit, I thank you today for the power that is in your word.
God, I pray today you would lift the shackles and the weights of comparison off of us. God, there are those here today for so many years been under the weight of comparison, trying to be somebody that we're never called to be. God, today, give us the grace to run our race. God, we fix our eyes back on you because you are the author and the perfecter of our faith.